Hello, and welcome to the Nutcast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Quentin Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 175th episode of the Nauticast titled Shadow and Flame, an analysis of a Storm of Swords Davos 3, in which Davos Seaworth finds himself in what you might call the white-collar prison within the Westeros dungeon complex system. Can you say that's the case for Davos Seaworth here? Truly, this is the ultimate sign of Davos moving up in the world. He gets the nicest jail cell he's ever had. Still in jail, but hey. This is not the last time that Davos Seaworth is going to be in prison in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's kind of a theme for him, as so to speak. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems, and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbishop Doom, Heel of the Lester Poxes, Ragged Mike, Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Robowoman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War in the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, Lord Jacob too, the Head of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of, Lord, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Record Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly Warren, the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Ted's Dent, the Troglodyte Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite sin, Herald of Sharon, Ambassador Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Canada, the ADs, and the General Lems, the Nodcast, Non Binary, Non Army. Holdover, the way for Dwell, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of Hedgetown, Veneris of House Golgari, the first name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mr. Swart, the worked, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity the Great, Game of Thrones, Portrait of the Rum, the Real of the Seven Kings, Bunner Paints, Maker of Drawings, the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scrappy the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbian, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Pony of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob, Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal. Hold up, the Holder of Cups. Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Regatary, and Side Prophecy Boys Club. Part 2. Lady Anna, the Lovey Castellan. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Madness, Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samus Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrants of the South, and Patriot Free Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher of Arendelle, Fisher, Ice Master Deliverer, the Valiant, Pungent, Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Rethers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the King's Win, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Nons II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful, Romantic, and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warren of the Western Reserve, Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges, Lord Joe R., and Lady Christina H. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiling, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the redacted novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Tony B., a Sworn Sword patron, who has a theory about our end of episode discussion we had from Davos' last chapter, his second chapter in Storm of Swords. 
I wanted to contact you guys about a question that came up in that previous Davos uh, Storm of Swords episode. The question was, why did Melisandre want Davos to encounter Edric Storm in Aegon's Garden when Davos returned to Dragonstone after the Battle of Blackwater? I think of Axel of the hairy ears and nostrils, and he said that Melisandre specifically wanted Davos to encounter Edric. I always wondered about this, but on my last read-through, I noticed something. Davos is sick when he returns to Dragonstone, having a bad cough, coughing stuff up. Shortly after this chapter, we hear that Edric is sick and being leeched. I think Melisandre wanted Davos to have contact with Edric so that Edric would catch the cold, or whatever sickness Davos had, so that Melisandre would have a legitimate reason to leech Edric to get his king's blood. That's just me, though. What do you guys think about this? What do you think, Jeff? Do you think that that answers our, our open question from the previous Davos chapter? I think it does, actually. I think, you know... I, I listened back to that episode a few days ago in preparation for doing Davos's third chapter here, and I was listening through it. I was like, "Yeah, I didn't really have a great answer for for that end of the the episode discussion of why Melisandre wanted Edric to encounter Davos, or rather, why did she wanted Davos to encounter Edric at, in Aegon's Garden." But I think this really answers the question because I think it adds a practical twist to what's happening here. The Melisandre is using the practical, physical realities of what Davos is experiencing in terms of being sick. And using that for magical reasons, namely to sway Stannis to back her her plea to burn Edric Storm or to raise Stone Dragon, something that will be introduced in this chapter and expounded upon at significant length in Davos four, five, and six. I think it's I think it's a great point. I'm willing to accept that as canon now. What do you think, sir? Yeah, I like that a lot, especially coming through this chapter. And Melisandre, you know, she brings a queer flush to Davos's face, almost like, you know, she's she's a sickness, she's the flu. That kind of that kind of fits actually well. And I love the idea that she would kind of try to use him as, as biological warfare. <laughs> That's actually nice and cold and ruthless in a Melisandre way. And it's it fits Davos's arc for me because he is trying to save Edric Storm and trying to get him away from Stannis and Melisandre. That's where his chapters lead in this book. And I think that's that would be oddly appropriate if Davos was himself partially responsible for Edric's mm. position. Like, without knowing it, he contributed to putting Edric in a vulnerable position and being part of Melisandre's plots. That gives him almost an extra layer of responsibility that he has to do something about this. So I don't think we'll ever get a, a, a coherent, objective response on this. I, you know, it's not the most important plot point in the story, but it stood out to me when I read that previous Davos chapter, and I, I definitely love this response for it. I think it actually makes a great deal of sense. Yeah, Tony B., you nailed it, man. Damn right. So thank you to Tony for the comment and the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron, where you can over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes, like our upcoming analysis of the 2003 Battlestar Galactica miniseries, merch, Q&A, access to the Nauticast Slack, and shout outs at the start and end of every episode. I cannot tell you how excited I am to return to Battlestar Galactica, but especially to return to it with you, sir, because Hell yeah. it is really good. It really stands up. And like you were saying, I believe last week, it is available for free on Peacock. So if you folks have not seen it before and you love sci-fi or even if you don't love sci-fi, I was not a big sci-fi fan when it came onto the series back in 2006 is when I first watched it. You are in for a treat, and I hope you will tune in for that episode as one of our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF, where you can get all of our bonus episodes and all of the stuff that Emmett mentioned before. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos Seaworth, he had tried to do some murder, but ended up arrested for his attempt. Let's find out what the Dragonstone Jail is like in this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Davos 3. The cell was warmer than any cell had a right to be. It was dark, yes. 
flickering orange light fell through the ancient iron bars and the torch in the sconce on the wall outside, but the back half of the cell remained drenched in gloom. It was dank as well, as might be expected on an isle such as Dragonstone, where the sea was never far, and there were rats, as many as any dungeon could, could expect to have, and a few more besides. Like I was saying in the intro, Davis opening up in this chapter in a jail. So, man, I wonder if that's ever going to be repeated in A Song of Ice and Fire. Davos won't complain about the chill, though. Dragonstone had warm walls. The warmer, the farther down they went. Maybe Dragonstone was built with the stones of hell, like this old stories used to say. <laughs> Yikes. Davos was sick when they brought him here. A bad case of the flu. He thought he was going to die, but he was wrong about that. Maester Pylos helped him, giving him broth and milk of the poppy. And as he slept, he was leached, or so he suspected, given all the marks on his arms. And as Davos improved, his food became better, more filling. Stews with white fish, carrot, and onions. And then one day, Davos realized that he was stronger than when Black Betha was destroyed under him on the Blackwater. Davos here has two jailers, a broad squat dude who fed him porridge and a skinny dude who brought him dinner meals that included lamprey. Davos judges day and night by the food the jailers bring. They didn't speak to him, though, so he names them Porridge and Lamprey. A man grows lonely in the dark and hungers for the sound of a human voice. Davos would talk to the jailers whenever they would come to his cell, whether to bring him food or change his slops pails. He knew they would be deaf to please for freedom or mercy. Instead, he asked them questions, hoping perhaps one day one might answer. What news of the war, he asked. Is the king well? He asked after his son Devon and the princess Shireen and Salador's son. What is the weather like, he asked, and have the autumn storms begun yet? Do ships still sail the narrow sea? But the two men never answer. Though Porridge does give Davos a look that he thinks that... Though, though Porridge gives him a look, while well, Davos thinks that Lamprey might not even know that Davos is alive. Lamprey looked at Davos like a job that he needed to do, but Porridge was a human. Davos even thinks he's feeding the rats. They do not mean to let me die, Davos realized. They are keeping me alive for some purpose of their own. He did not like to think what that might be. Lord Sunglass had been confined to the cells beneath Dragonstone for a time, as had Sir Humbert Rampin's sons. All of them had ended on the pyre. I should have given myself to the sea, Davos thought as he sat staring at the torch beyond the bars, or let the sail pass me by to perish on my rock. I would sooner feed crabs than flames. But then one night, as Davos finished his dinner, he feels a weird warmth, and he sees that none other than Melisandre is present. She asks if he's well and whether he lacks for anything. Well, he's doing... Better, yes, and as for what he lacks, my king, my son, I lack for them. He pushed the bowl aside and stood. Have you come to burn me? Melisandre's strange red eyes studied him through the bars. This is a bad place, is it not? A dark place and foul. The good sun does not shine here, nor the bright moon. She lifted a hand towards the torch in the wall sconce. This is all that stands between you and darkness, Sonia Knight. This little fire, this gift of her lore. Shall I put it out? No, he moved towards the bars. P please, he did not think he could bear that, to be left alone in utter blackness with no one but the rats for company. Melisandre asks if Davos has come to love the fire. No, but he does need the torch. Right. Melisandre is like the torch. She's an instrument for lore. Her and her torch keep the darkness at bay. Does Davos believe in this? F fuck no. Maybe he should have lied about that, but he was too honest for that. He knows that Melisandre is evil. She birthed this shadow under the storm's end after all. Melisandre makes fun of Davos for being a little frightened of shadows, which seems a little bit like gaslighting if you ask me. Regardless, good news. Melisandre can't make more shadows with Stannis as the process might kill him, but she might do it with another band. 
Oh, and she would. She'd give, she'd give Davos the best sex he'd ever known. They could make a horror. Davos retreated from her. I want no part of you, my lady, or your god. May the seven protect me. Melisandre says the seven didn't protect Gunster's sunglass when he got burned. Why does Davos even worship the seven? Because he worshipped them all his life. Melisandre thinks this is a poor answer and suspects Davos is lying to himself about the seven. She wants Davos to see something. And what is it that she would like Davos to see? The way the world is made. The truth is all about you, plain to behold. The night is dark and full of terrors. The day bright and beautiful and full of hope. One is black, the other white. There is ice and there is fire. Hate and love, bitter and sweet, male and female, pain and pleasure, winter and summer, evil and good. Melisandre took a step toward him. Death and life, everywhere opposites, everywhere, the war. The war? asked Davos. The war, she affirmed. There are two on your night, not seven, not one, not a th hundred, not a thousand, two. Do you think I crossed half the world to put yet another vain king on yet another empty throne? The war has been waged since time began, and before it is done, all men must choose where they will stand. On one side is Relor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Against him stands the great other whose name must not be spoken, the Lord of Darkness, the Soul of Ice, the God of Night and Terror. Ours is not a choice between Baratheon and Lannister, between Greyjoy and Stark. It is death we choose, or life, darkness, or light. She, gla she clasped the bars of his cell with her slender white hands. The great ruby at her throat seemed to pulse with its own radiance. So tell me, Sir Devil Seaworth, and tell me truly, does your heart burn with the shining light of her lore, or is it black and cold and full of worms? She reached through the bars and laid three fingers upon his breast as if to feel the truth of him through flesh and wool and leather. My heart, Davos said slowly, is full of doubts. I think this dialogue is superb. And once again, kind of similar to the Night of the Laughing Tree story from last time, it's really hard not to quote it in full. Melisandre says that Davos is honest, at least. You see, false servants of the other hide black hearts in light. Oh, and by the way, why did you mean to kill Melisandre? Davos says, show me yours and I'll show you mine. Who betrayed him? Salad or San? Well, no one betrayed Davos, according to Melisandre. She saw his purpose in her flames. How convenient that Melisandre saw that and not the Inferno coming for them on the Blackwater, Davos, Davos retorts. Melisandre says that Davos wrongs her. Those weren't her fires, but she would have definitely been able to turn the tide of the battle itself if she were there. But Stannis had all these unbelievers around him, and Relor punished Stannis for his sin, and now Stannis has learned his lessons. Were my sons no more than lessons for a king then? Davos felt his mouth tighten. It is night in your seven kingdoms now, the red woman went on. But soon the sun will rise. The war continues, Davos Seaworth, and some will soon learn that even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze. The old maester looked at Stannis and saw only a man. You see a king. You are both wrong. He is the Lord's chosen, the warrior of fire. I have seen him leading the fight against the dark. I have seen it in the flames. The flames do not lie, else you would not be here. It is written in prophecy as well. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst salt and smoke to wake dragons out of stone. The bleeding star has come and gone, and Dragoso is a place of smoke and salt. Stannis Baratheon is Azor Ahai reborn. Her red eyes blazed like twin fires and seemed to stare deep into his soul. You do not believe me. You doubt the truth of her lore even now. Yet I've served him all the same and will serve him again. 
I shall leave you here to think on all that I have told you, and because Relore is the source of all good, I shall leave the torch as well. So Melisandre bugs out of the ch- out of the chambers and leaves the torch. Once her footsteps fade, all Davos can hear is the scrabbling of rats. Davos considers the duality of what Melisandre was saying. He's sure glad that Salador sought to betray him, but doesn't like the idea of serving Relor again. He looks up to the torch and tries to search the flames, but he sees nothing. God blind and tired, Davos curled up on the straw and gave himself to sleep. God blind is such a nifty turn of phrase. So again, yet another time I'm quoting this chapter. Three days later, or rather three days and two nights later, Davos hears a voice of a man yelling that it was all madness. Davos sees that Sir Axel Florin and Porridge were dragging an older man to the cell. The man yells that he's no traitor and asks for Selyse. He demands to see her, but no one gives a shit. Porridge asks if Axel wants the older man to be tossed into Davos' cell, and Davos considers rushing the guards and Porridge, but he realizes that he'd probably be killed. So he stands aside as Axel tells the jailer to toss the traitor into the other traitor's cell. I'm no traitor! He screeched the prisoner as Porridge was unlocking the door. Though he was plainly dressed in gray wool, doublet, and black breeches, his speech marked him as highborn. His birth will not serve him here, thought Davos. The guards toss the man in as he goes a big no on being in here. He's the king's hand! At that, Davos knows the man. He's Lord Alistair Florin. Alistair asks who, asks who Davos is. Well, he's Davos. Ah, the bro who tried to murder the Lady Melisandre. Alice, Alistair then apologizes for his appearance. He lost all of his money when the Lannisters overran his camp on the Blackwater. But he still has his cute armor and the rings on his fingers that Davos remembered seeing at the camp at Storm's End. Alistair says that Davos probably lost stuff on the Blackwater too. Yeah, he did. His ship, his men, and four of his fucking sons, bro. Alistair mutters a half-hearted piety about the Lord of Light protecting them, and Davos prays that the father judges his sons justly and the mother grants them mercy. Again, though, in his head. Alistair remarks that his son is safe back at Brightwater Keep, but he lost his nephew, Imri, on the Blackwater. Davos remembers remembers Imri as that moron commander we uncovered so well back in Clash of Kings Davos 3, and he asks if there were any survivors from Imri's flagship fury. The fury burned and sank with all hands, his lordship said. Your son and my nephews were lost with countless other good men. The war itself was lost that day, sir. This man is defeated. Davos remembered Melisandre's talk of embers in the ashes igniting great blazes. Small wonder he ended here. His grace will never yield, my lord. Folly! That's folly! Lord Alistair sat on the floor again as if the effort of standing for a moment had been too much for him. Stannis Baratheon will never sit the Iron Throne. Is it treason to say the truth? A bitter truth, but no less true for that. His fleet is gone, save for the Lyseni, and Salador San will flee at the first sight of a Lannister sail. Most of the lords who supported Stannis have gone over to Joffrey or died. Davos wonders about the lords of the Narrow Sea. Are they gone too? Most of them are dead, first off. And the rest who are survived are either sworn to the Lancers or just 15-year-old kids. They need to make a peace. And how is peace treason? Davos asks what Alistair did, and the man reports that he was Hand of the King. And how can the Hand of the King be a traitor? He was trying to save everyone's life, and yes, their honor too. He wrote a letter to Tywin with terms. Davos asks what the terms were. Before Alistair answers, he remarks that it smells awful in here. Why is that? Well, because Davos is shitting in a pail. It's the fucking dungeons, bro. There's no privy here. And what were Alistair's terms? His lordship stared at the pale and whore. That 
Lord Stannis give up his claim to the Iron Throne and retract all he said of Joffrey's bastardy on the condition that he be accepted back into the king's peace and confirmed as Lord of Dragonstone at Storm's End. I, I, I vowed to do the same for the return of Brightwater Keep in our all our lands, I thought. L Lord Tywin, he would see sense in my proposal. He still has the stocks to deal with and the Iron Men as well. I offered him the seal to the bargain by wedding... I offered to seal the bargain by wedding Shireen to Joffrey's brother Tommen. Alistair shook his head. The, the, the terms, they were as good as, as any we were ever like to get... Even you can see that, surely. Yes, said Davos. Even me. Unless Stannis should father a son, such a marriage would mean that Dragonstone and Storm's End would one day pass to Tommen, which would doubtless please Lord Tywin. Meanwhile, the Lancers would have Shireen as a hostage to make certain Stannis raise no new rebellions. And what did his grace say when he proposed these terms to him? He, he is always with the Red Woman, and, and he is not his right mind, I fear. This talk of stone dragons? Madness. I tell you, sheer madness do we learn nothing from arian bright flame from the nine mages from the alchemist did we learn nothing from summer hall no good has ever come from these dreams of dragons i told axel as much my way was better sure and stannis gave me his seal he gave me leave to rule the hand speaks with the king's voice no Alistair did not speak for Stannis in this, Davos says. Stannis will not yield or go back on declaring Joffrey as a bastard born of incest. And how can Stannis marry Shireen since Tommen is a bastard born of that same incest? He'd rather that Shireen die than have that befall her. Alistair declares that Stannis has no choice. You are wrong, my lord. He could choose to die a king. And us with him? Is that what you desire, Onion Knight? No. But I am the king's man, and I will make no peace without his leave. Lord Alistair stared at Davos helplessly for a long moment, and then began to weep. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords Davos 3. Like you were saying in multiple previous Davos chapters, these Davos chapters keep getting better as we progress into A Storm of, into a Storm of Swords. Amazing stuff all around. What did you think, sir? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Davos gets a structurally perfect character arc in this book. He starts in his first chapter with nothing, reborn from the sea onto an empty rock. In his second chapter, he returned to Dragonstone, a slightly bigger empty rock on the sea, trying to remake himself as a vengeful warrior of God. And he failed miserably. So now in his third chapter, he's going through a crucible, forced to seriously consider what's real and what matters to him. He's sorting through competing incentives and incomplete information struggling to forge his own path through the drama unfolding around him. That drama is both spiritual and political, and this chapter splits neatly in two with one character representing each, Melisandre for the spiritual, Alistair Florent for the political, each of them standing in for part of Davos, like both of these conversations are happening inside his head. It's all conveyed with striking imagery and sharply written dialogue. This is pretty much a flawless chapter, and yet, as you were saying, <laughs> Davos chapters keep getting better from here. And so he remains the objectively best point of view in A Storm of Swords. I am quitting the podcast because enough of this Jamie <laughs> slander. I quit. Honestly, your patience up to now has been remarkable. Well, thank you. Applause for your forbearance, sir. Thank you. Yes, everyone, please <laughs> applaud me. I tease. I tease. Like I said, Davos just keeps picking up. Rather, like you said, Davos just keeps picking up and getting better with each chapter until we hit some truly glorious, memorable, dynamic, and excellent chapters here. But this chapter is excellent, glorious, and dynamic, too. It's also a crucible of a chapter. It's a transition of a sorts, but it's not simply perfunctory for Davos and George. Because George wants to introduce the conflict which will become the centerpiece of Davos's story in the remainder of A Storm of Swords. Is he a loyal standard man or is he a good man? What are the limits of Davos's loyalty? 
What are the limits of him being a good man? What will Davos do when these conflicting motivations conflict? The foundations of that conflict are here. And as we'll see in Davos's fourth chapter in Storm, Davos will try to harmonize morality and loyalty. But the rest of Sark will see the two values diverge in probably the most thrilling, dramatic, and satisfying of ways. I think you hit on the heart of it, that duality, that, that endless conflict. Davos's story in Storm of Swords is all about ambiguity. He's being confronted with opposites coming together, everyone and everything showing two faces. And that's what makes it such a perfect arc for him in particular, because it prevents him from being a two-dimensional prop of pure justice, which he easily could be as a character. Davos has to navigate waters more stormy than literal seas. He has to recalibrate his own moral compass rather than just be Stannis' moral compass. Stannis, once again, doesn't even show up in this chapter. Davos only existed at first as a camera on Stannis Baratheon, and now half his chapters go by in this book before we even see the king. That's in part so George can build up the tension by hinting what Stannis might be getting up to out of sight, as we see via Alistair Florent in this chapter. But it's also to give us more time in Davos' thoughts on their own terms. And we need that, because his story in this book ultimately hinges on his choices. His choices are so dramatically potent because of that ambiguity. This chapter opens with Davos enjoying the warmth of his prison cell. <laughs> sure, it's dark down here, with only a single feeble torch to hold back the night. It's moist, too. The sea is close by, calling Davos back to it. But at least it's not cold. Davos spends a lot of time in jail, as a politician as well as a smuggler. Maybe even more time as a politician in jail. He gets imprisoned at Sisterton and again at White Harbor later in the series. He's used to being in jail. This is one of the nicer ones. After all, this is where he got better. When the Queen's men first threw him into jail for pre-crime against Melisandre, Davos thought he would die down here in the dark. He was feverish and coughing after his ordeal on the rock. Surely being imprisoned is going to make it worse. But Davos recovers, thanks to the kindly intervention of Maester Pylos, a king's man who will later join his conspiracy to rescue Edric Storm. Like Salador, he really only wants the best for Davos. And I think the choice of Pylos as the caretaker for Davos is a really good touch here because of how he was contrasted to Maester Cresson from the Clash of Kings prologue. Back then, Pylos was initially framed ambiguously to Cresson as both a nice dude, but also his replacement. By the end of the prologue, Pylos was the usurper, though, sitting in Cresson's appointed place by the king's side after letting Cresson sleep rather than join the dinner feast, the party that Stannis was having there back then. Not much of a party. But here and for the rest of Storm, Pylos is a good man, restoring Davos physically, caring for him medically, and then, of course, aiding Davos in the Edric Storm mission. George likes his reversals in reader expectations, showing us how the perspective of someone shifts depending upon the point of view. Pylos could be both a good man and a usurper. It's a small illustration of the greater whole of Davos's arc in Storm. Things, people, ideas, values are not so polar, not so binary, not so Melisandre ideology, not so Melisandre-like in terms of her ideology. There's a wide kind of brackish middle where ice and fire mate, where Pylos and Davos can be a mix of both good and bad. The blisters fade, the coughing stops, Davos can eat solid food again, and suddenly he realizes he's as close to his old self as he's ever going to be. So even as his freedom has been curtailed, his circumstances have been improved. And he's been forced off the dangerous and destructive path of thinking of himself as the hand of God. In his efforts to defeat Melisandre, he was becoming her. As Davos thinks, he was wrong that he would die here, as he was wrong about so much else. Now, he doesn't specify what he was wrong about. Serving Stannis so blindly? Putting his faith in his vision of the mother? Trying to kill Melisandre instead of heeding Sala's advice? Could be any or all of them. The point is that Davos has been set back on his heels and has to re-examine. 
His cell fits the motif of a cave, which resonates with reference points from Plato to Jesus. The cave is the meeting place of birth, death, and rebirth, as it was for Team Bran last week with the Little, and will be for John and Egret next week. It's a womb, but also a tunnel to the underworld, and you can see both sides of that coin here. The cell is warm, wet, and dark, just like Davos is a fetus in the womb. As he thinks, though, the warmth comes from deep down inside Dragonstone, volcanic, like the stones are from hell. Well, there's your passage to the underworld, as well as a connection to the hellish red bricks of Astapor we were talking about in our recent Daenerys episodes. So even while the warmth is comforting Davos, helping him heal, it's also reminding him that fire can kill. Why are they keeping him alive, he wonders. Is it just to burn him later? If so, he'd have preferred to die on his rock, never get better. This duality is reflected by his jailers. Down here in the dark, with neither sun nor moon, they're his only way of keeping track of time. It's an ironic reversal of his time on the rock. There, he was exposed to nature, and starved of both food and human connection. Here, he's hidden from nature, and is fed rather well for a prisoner, but he still denied that human connection. Davos doesn't know his jailers' names, so he calls them Lamprey and Porridge after the food they bring him. Worth noting that Porridge is the one Davos likes, even though Lamprey is the one who brought him the rich food. Porridge looks at Davos like a person, Davos can just tell, while Lamprey looks at him like an object. It's the same distinction Davos has made between the highborns, like uh, Lord Penrose, who treat him with respect, versus those who scorn him for his low birth. That recognition of humanity is what Davos cares about, not the wealth and power symbolized by the fancy dinner. It reminds me of how Davos threw up the equally rich food given to him by Salador's men after he got off the rock. Lamprey even dresses in fancier clothes than Porridge does, but they're torn and ill-fitting, just as Stannis' crown seems too big for his head in Davos' next chapter. Going forward, Davos isn't interested in the power of being Hand of the King. He's interested in how that position allows him to help others, specifically Edric Storm. He looks at Edric as Porridge looks at him, like a person. Stannis and Melisandre, especially Melisandre, look at Edric the way Lamprey looks at Davos, like an object. I love the detail that Davos thinks he hears Porridge whispering to the rats sometimes. The man is just really lonely, like Davos on his rock, or like Stannis and Melisandre pretty much all of the time. <laughs> All these people are lonely and in need of someone to talk to, even if it's only rats. Thankfully, Davos won't be lonely for long. Right. Warm Company is always welcome down here in the Dungeons of Dragonstone, so to speak. And <laughs> I think there's also a lot of pretending going on in this chapter. Everyone is pretending to be something that they're not. Lamprey has his rich clothes on, playing at nobility, serving rich foods to Davos, and Porridge pretends to be a father to the rats. Meanwhile, Dragonstone itself, kind of a character in this chapter, pretends. The farther down they should have descended, the colder the stones should have been. But the stones here are warm. Dragonstone connected to hell is kind of a poetic way that Davos puts it. Dragonstone connected to lava is probably the more mundane reason why the stones are warm, probably the, the explanation that I favor. But I think there's something more being communicated here. I really have loved your point. It goes back to 2018, but I loved your point from a, from a Game of Thrones Catelyn 2 about the stones of Winterfell crying out that Jon is a Targaryen and a Stark. Like you talked about so well, the hot springs of Winterfell flow through cold stone, symbolizing Jon's hot Targaryen blood and genetics flowing through the cold northern Stark exterior and genetics. Meanwhile, the hot water is a balm. The hot water in the springs from Winterfell is a balm. It nourishes the castle, providing the greenhouse for when winter comes, keeping the residents warm and alive against the cold of a northern winter. Dragonstone is a bit different, though. It kind of gives off a different kind of heat. It's not the nourishing warmth and heat of Winterfell. Davos wonders if the heat is from hell. I think lava again, but tomato, tomato. 
What it feels like is that Devastone is what if Devastone. What it feels like is that Dragonstone is a counterfeit Winterfell, a castle which has the same attributes of Winterfell broadly, but the source of the realm, but the source of the warmth is hellish as opposed to nourishing. And if you hold to the theory that Jon Snow is a Zora High reborn, Winterfell, Winterfell represents the true vision version of that figure. Sitting atop the throne of Dragonstone, though, is the counterfeit Azor High, Stannis Baratheon. And once you know it, but Devos feels a queer flush come across him and a figure proclaiming the false messiah as the true one in the very next scene. I love that comparison of Dragonstone and Winterfell. I think that's that's right on. It, it, I definitely had that sense while reading Clash of Kings when you had both Dragonstone and Winterfell chapters in the book. And, and Heron Hall felt to me like a kind of a version of that archetype too, where it's like, you have Dragonstone and Winterfell as castles that are barely restraining the fire, and then Harrenhal is what it looks like when the fire just bursts out hmm. and uh, and and uh, takes over the castle. But yes, then Melisandre shows up. And as I've been saying, Davos' story in this book is all about duality. So the bulk of this chapter is built around two conversations, one with Melisandre and the other with Alistair Florent. Perfect opposites. They address the situation of Team Stannis from different angles, reaching different conclusions, but they both draw on where Davos stood in Clash of Kings, and propel his story forward in their own unique ways. First up is the Red Woman. Davos feels a queer flush come over him as she arrives, which sounds like sexual arousal, but also like he's getting the flu. And that sets up Melisandre's ambiguous role in the story. She's attractive, but she's also a disease. As in Clash of Kings, George brings some of his most vivid imagery to bear on Melisandre. Her robes of, quote, shimmering scarlet, her red ruby and red eyes catching the light from the torch. She's hypnotizing. She doesn't seem quite real. Last time we saw her, that imagery reached its fever pitch, light blooming in the darkness under storm's end, as she gave birth to a shadow. This is a similar situation. We're underground, there's a little light holding the darkness back, Melisandre even brings up the shadow babies, and Melisandre overall is talking as though nothing has happened in the interim. She's talking calmly, George writes, like, like they're just exchanging polite <laughs> greetings in the stairwell. And Stannis does the same thing in Davos' next chapter. Zero acknowledgement of what's happened since Storm's End, even Davos' dead sons. He just jumps into the issues head first. So, Sir Davos, as we were saying about treason. <laughs> Davos has lost patience with these pretenses. So when Melisandre asks if he lacks anything, he is straightforward about his goals, and also hers. My king, my son, I lack for them. Have you come to burn me? But just like at Storm's End, Melisandre engages him in philosophical debate, trying to explain her perspective by undercutting his. And I think that's such so interesting because the idea of a zealot in the story would have one where Melisandre would just come to drag Devos to the pyre, strap him to the fire and light him on fire. That's what you think that a zealot would do. But again, George has said repeatedly that Melisandre is the most misunderstood character in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I think Melisandre spends a lot of time engaging in discussion with Davos Seaworth, specifically because she knows she's so misunderstood. She's aware of her reputation and she's trying to like belay it a little bit, trying to like get over it and become someone that people can understand better. She's actually, and this gets back to a Clash of Kings material we covered and talked about at length, but she's a missionary trying to convert the unbelievers to her side and her method of doing so is to argue with people. I like the the dynamic here. Davos though, probably, I mean, of course I'm way exterior from what Davos is experiencing in this chapter. I enjoy it from the outside looking in. Davos on the inside, not quite the same uh, response from him. I think you covered it perfectly. From Melisandre's perspective, like this is a, a kind of rapport between equals because she does seem to respect Davos and see him as like the, the smartest or the most worldliest of the unbelievers, someone that Stannis takes seriously, someone with a good heart. She's like, that would be a coup for me. If I could get this guy, yeah. that, would be, that would be impressive. 
And so that's what she's, she's trying to do. She, in her mind, she's just engaging in this argument. As always with her, it comes back to fire and how fire conceptually divides the world in two. Davos is in a dark place, she says, literally as well as figuratively. This torch is the only light he has. What if she were to take it away? Well, Davos couldn't bear that. Total darkness would only increase his isolation. Solitary confinement is torture enough without being denied the light. Melisandre believes this proves her point. He's come to love the fire, she says. And according to her, she is fire. She and her god are like a torch in the darkness, preventing mankind from being alone in our barbarism. And she is talking to him respectfully, which is more than the Florence ever do. The problem with Melisandre's whole, like, conversion tactic, speaking to you with respect thing is she's negotiating from a position of strength. Mm. She has all the power over him now, which is, as you say, is why Davos is uncomfortable. The threat of human sacrifice hangs heavy here. Davos does need the torch, but fire only helps him at a safe distance. If he were to plunge into the fire like a moth, it wouldn't save him. It would kill him. As Salador told him, too much light can blind the eyes and fire burns. Melisandre has taken a good thing too far. Davos always argues for balance to avoid abusing any kind of power. And he's right to refuse Melisandre's offer to make a shadow baby with him. Just judging from the look of Stannis, it wouldn't turn out for well for Davos if he did. But she's right, though, that he has lost any secure philosophical foundation of his own. You don't like my god? Fine. But what good are yours? Gunser Sunglass believed in the Seven as much as anyone did. Didn't save him. What good are gods with no tangible power? As in Clash of Kings, Davos has no real argument to make on behalf of the faith. All he can say is that he followed these gods all his life. And Melisandre, I think, correctly points out that that's really not an argument. Just appealing to tradition is not a substantive argument. You may as well say we've done it since yesterday. Who are we in the sweep of time? What do our lives mean? Melisandre, in her mind, is trying to bring meaning to a meaningless world. Burn away the lies covering men's eyes so they can behold the one true truth. And this makes her categorically different from cruel opportunists like Axel Florent. But it also makes her more dangerous than that. Opportunists can be bought, or at least intimidated. True believers like Melisandre will do anything, absolutely anything, to bring their vision of a better world to pass. She respects Davos, I think, because he's honest. She's used to liars and flatterers, and she appreciates someone who will tell her what he really thinks, defy her to her face. Even though she puts so much work into intimidating others, the trappings of power, she calls them, Ironically, she respects Davos because he's able to see through those trappings. It allows her to speak, I think, on a more human level as far as she thinks. And I think that human level is, is important for, for Melisandre because she realizes she's surrounded by a bunch of bullshitting assholes in this chapter because so many of the people in Stances camp fall into the category of the people that she describes as those who hide black hearts in light colors. The Florence mm -hmm. are probably the most prominent examples, the opportunists who seized on Relord to gain favor in Stannis's court. Axel Florence, the malicious manifestation of that dynamic, as we'll see in Davos's fourth chapter, he's violent and abusive, using R'hllor as a cudgel to cleave his way into higher and higher positions of authority. Alistair Florence, who we'll meet again in a few minutes, is the more benign version of the false believer who, quote-unquote, converted, but quickly falls back into his faith of the seven ways that Davos uh, almost catches here. Then there's also other people, too, like Clayton Suggs, the guy from Stannis' camp who Asha says loves the fire and not R'hllor, loves the violence and loves, you know, abusing and beating women. And among all of those stands Davos. Davos is intriguing because he doesn't have the mature faith of your Catelyn Starks. His growing up experience seems to be kind of the CEO, or as I was always brought up to believe, the Christmas Easter only faith of the seven believers. But he did have the profound experience of hearing what he thought was the mother's voice on Blackwater Bay. But he failed in the mission that the quote-unquote mother gave him. 
And the subtext here at points reads that Davos feels as though he either failed the mother and failed the gods, or even, and I think this is more interesting, that the mother didn't actually speak to him at all. He doesn't come out and say that the mother probably didn't, that wasn't her voice in his ears and in his head. It was probably his own voice. But I think that's the subtext here. And it's poss- possibly one of the reasons why Davos becomes less enthused about the faith of the seven in terms of his thoughts and his the words he says as we progress through a storm of swords. I agree. I think that's a great point. Davos is, is back to square one. He's kind of burned through, so to speak, this new identity for himself and is more confused than ever. So who is he? What defines him? Well, Davos speaks truth to kings. That's what Melisandre says. She found that out in Clash of Kings. But he lies to himself, she says. And that is what he's struggling with in this book. I said King Stannis was my god. Anything was worth it in service of him. Is that still true? If not, what is true? That's not really what Melisandre is talking about, though. Those kind of internal identity struggles. Her concerns are more metaphysical. And so she monologues about how the world is made. In her view, the entire universe is a war between opposites. There are not seven gods, there are two. One of ice and one of fire. And every element of existence breaks down into one of those categories. Life is a struggle between bitter and sweet, man and woman, light and dark. You pick one side or you pick the other. And she picked the light, she picked the fire. Melisandre becomes here the first character south of the wall to address the threat of another long night, talking about the god of ice and winter and darkness howling down from the north, and that is a big deal. From the very beginning of the story, George has, con- George has contrasted the apocalyptic urgency of the other's return with how unprepared Westeros is to deal with it. So our dread keeps growing. We know they're just going to be blindsided. Now we finally see someone in a position of power talk about that growing threat. Finally, someone says the Iron Throne doesn't matter in the face of the end of the world. And I do think this is meant to change our view of Melisandre, that she's not in this to make Stannis the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, she's in this to prevent the extinction of our species. What could be more heroic than that? Here's the problem. Melisandre's binary worldview is absolute bullshit. And I, you know, I could approach it on kind of more theoretical terms, but let's just go through her examples that she gives of how the world is made this way. One is black, the other white. Well, what about gray, the color of House Stark, which fuses black and white? There is ice and there is fire. Well, what about Jon Snow, like we were saying earlier, born of both ice and fire? Hate and love. We just went over this last week. Mira Reed both hates and loves the mountains. Pain and pleasure. Melisandre herself disproves this one. When she gives birth to the shadow beneath Storm's Inn, George describes her cry as one of both agony and ecstasy. Winter and summer. Interesting that she's leaving out two seasons there, fall and spring, which act as the go-betweens. Same thing with day and night. Well, what about twilight and the pre-dawn hours in between? Death and life. All life feeds into death, and death feeds a fertile soil from which life grows. This isn't a struggle of opposites, it's an eternal cycle. Evil and good. Stannis himself is simultaneously evil and good, a hero and a villain sharing the same skin, and he's not alone in that. Male and female. Well, plenty of real-world examples that demonstrate that this is not, in fact, a rigid binary. But even within the story, George writes that dragons switch genders all the time. They're changeable as flame. As flame. So even fire, Melisandre's favorite thing in the world, is fluid in a way that disproves her point. Finally, bitter and sweet. And I close with that one because George has said the ending to A Song of Ice and Fire will be, say it with me, bittersweet. Hell yeah. (laughs) The structure of the story itself is designed as a counterargument against Melisandre's simplistic worldview. So while Melisandre's intentions are good, heroic even, the ideas behind those intentions are fatally flawed. And I think Davos speaks for George here when he responds, My heart is full of doubts. There can be no absolute certainty. 
in an ambiguous world that refuses to give up its mysteries, especially when we're always locked into our own POV. Doubt is the human condition. We have to invest ourselves in external projections of self, those shadows on walls that momentarily dispel the doubt. The path to wisdom, I think, is not in finding certainty, but in accepting the permanent status of doubt as a foundation for your thoughts, words, and actions. I think that's so good. I mean, George wonderfully contrasted Melisandre's perspective back in A Clash of Kings, Davos too, with Davos declaring that he's made of mixed parts, both good and bad, a great man. And that's the case for everyone in the real world and in this universe. What Melisandre's worldview demonstrates is the extremes of what George's term, everyone thinks they're the hero of their own story. Melisandre back in Clash Davos 2 proclaimed that she was good as Davos rode her to Storm's End. But the reality is that she too is mixed good and bad, as you pointed out. She's the first person south of the Wall to identify the apocalyptic forces gathering strength north of the Wall. And she's worked to convince Stannis of this, as will be demonstrated in our next Davos chapter. But the bad part is how she views the world as, as polar opposites, not recognizing the vast gray middle. Gunster's sunglass rejected Stannis after the Dragonstone Sep was sacked by the Queen's men. Stannis viewed this as treason. Melisandre views this as worshipping false gods. Gunster was burned all the same, which is horrifying. But doesn't make Melisandre's arguments wrong, exactly? And I think the fact that you have this ambiguity and this grayness in the middle here means that Melisandre's perspective, even if she's getting to the right end point, is kind of the wrong way of getting there. She's taking the wrong directions to get to that good end point. Agreed. I think George is trying to put thought processes on display and see how people reach the conclusions they reach. And I love that Davos doesn't tear down Melisandre's worldview in response. I think George trusts that his audience will be able to spot the flaws in her argument. Instead, Davos acknowledges that he doesn't know what the truth is. My heart is full of doubts. He's not falling back on faith like Unser Sunglass did. King Stannis is no longer Davos's god. He's searching for a new moral compass. That's his story in this book. Melisandre's respect for him, just like in Clash kind of proves his point. By her logic, Davos has chosen darkness by refusing to believe in the light. She should think of him as an enemy. But she doesn't, so maybe things are more complicated than that. Just as Melisandre isn't a devil, Davos is not an angel. As with Maester Cressen, Davos tried to kill her, not the other way around. So what about that? Why'd you do it, she asks. Davos gives the exact wrong answer. Because you burned my sons on the Blackwater, you gave them up to your fiery god. There were so many better answers he could give. <laughs> I tried to kill you because you burned people alive, for example, because you helped kill Renly and Courtney Penrose, because you're leading my king down a dangerous path. But this, you sacrificed my sons, this is the answer meaningful to Davos. This is the one connected to the human heart in conflict with itself. So Davos is wrong about what went down on the Blackwater, and Melisandre is wrong in the conclusions she draws from it. She declares that Stannis was too proud to let her help him win the battle. But now he knows better. He's like an ember among the ashes, she says. He can still light a great blaze. After all, he's a Zorahai Reborn, the protagonist of reality itself. This was just part of his hero's journey. It was a temporary obstacle. He needs setbacks like this to make him earn his position as God's chosen one. It's a way of weaving the defeat into the larger narrative she's constructing. But Davos, in his thoughts, cuts right through it. Were my sons no more than a lesson for a king? And this, I think, is George deconstructing the entire idea of the hero, the important figure around which everything revolves. Thinking that way, in terms of individual destinies that must be fulfilled, leads one to interpret everything that happens along the way as equally inevitable. Losses become collateral damage. They become lessons. But that means dehumanizing everyone who isn't the hero. Suddenly, their entire lives are only important to the extent they play into the narrative. 
And that is a really dangerous way of looking at the world. It's what leads Melisandre to the conclusion that burning Edric Storm is necessary, and Edric Storm himself, as a person, his own rights and possible future, it just doesn't even play into it. By this logic, no one really matters in themselves. It's only to the extent you serve the glory of God. Davos rejects that narrative, and I think we're supposed to as well. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, as they say in Quentin's chapters. We're each of us important. As Davos tells Stannis, a bastard's life is still worth everything against a kingdom. I think he's following up on this moment with Melisandre. He's talking about his own sons, as well as Edric, his surrogate son who replaces them. So when Melisandre monologues about how Stannis is the son of fire and the warrior of light who will rise again to save the day, I think we're supposed to consider the cost of doing that. We can't just assume that the desire to save the day is enough, because here's the thing. Everyone wants to save the day. The way Tywin thinks about things, he's saving the day. He's still the guy who does the Red (laughs) Wedding. So what's the cost? Whose story gets sacrificed in pursuit of the story that you've decided is the only important one? Again, it's not like Davos has easy answers to these questions. It's that he's honest about the fact that he has no easy answers. Melisandre leaves him the torch she threatened to take away. It demonstrates her good intentions. In the next chapter, Axel Florent will take the torch away, leaving his own brother alone in the dark. So as terrifying as Melisandre is, and as wrong as she is about so much, neither Davos nor the reader is allowed to hate her from a comfortable position, because she left the torch, she left the light against the darkness. Who won this debate? Kind of both of them did, and Davos knows it, thinking to himself that he can't deny the power of her god. He even stares into the fire himself, trying to see what she sees. But all he sees is fire. He's left alone with his dread, his uncertainty, his doubts. At the end of his story in this book, the moment that's the climax of his story, he will declare not that he has resolved his doubts, but that he is determined to do the right thing in spite of them. There's much I don't understand. I've never pretended elsewise. I know the seas and rivers, the shapes of the coasts where the rocks and shoals lie. I know hidden coves where a boat can land unseen. And I know that a king protects his people or he is no king at all. Such a powerful arc for Davos Seaworth here. And you see the majesty of how George is doing the chapter ordering too. Bray himself is a reluctant hero plunging forward beyond the wall into the great unknown. John, our next point of view, is in a place of ambiguity, ambiguity, metaphorically straddling the wall and wrestling with his identity. Davos 3 stands between these two point of view chapters and his heart is full of doubts. But that doesn't make him less heroic that he doesn't have a confident vision or even a confident ideology. Doing the right Thing seems a simplistic rendering of what we would call ideology, but it's effective. It's very sympathetic, and readers identify strongly with Davos. And I argue that it's, in a sense, it's much more complex than Melisandre's ideology. I think one of the angles that hits me about Melisandre at the end of this is similar to Davos. He's seen the power of Laura through her prophetic foresight and birthing multiple shadow babies. There are kind of a signs and wonders aspect of her lore, which distinguishes that God from the silence of the seven, save for again, for Davos's first storm of swords chapter, probably not. What gives Davos doubt about her is how the signs and wonders are being used. They're not being used for good, or they certainly don't seem good. For instance, we don't see Melisandre doing the whole Jesus route of giving sight to the blind, healing the sick, raising the dead sort of thing. Instead, it's, you know, the power of her is being used for like murder and shit. Or, okay, Frank, I know you're, you know, you're pulling out your hair now killing people who deserve to die. (laughs) That's what makes Davos so doubtful. The the power that Melisandre has isn't being used for good, and Davos wants to see power both in a magical, maybe in a magical, but much more in a political sense, being used for good. 
Enter Alistair Florence. Exactly. That's the perfect segue into Alistair Florent, the flip side of the coin. And I feel like just listing all the ways these conversations are opposites, just like Melisandre lists all the ways the world are the opposites. It, this conversation is about politics instead of magic. It explores differences in class instead of differences in faith. Melisandre threw Davos in jail. Alistair is there as his fellow prisoner. Melisandre was optimistic about the future, to a frightening extent. Alistair is pessimistic, defeated, as Davos thinks to himself. Even the tone is opposite. Davos's conversation with Melisandre was very somber and serious. His conversation with Alistair is more like dark comedy. <laughs> Melisandre, as I was saying, does the wrong things for the right reasons. Alistair has done the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. As Davos thinks, it's a change in his unchanging world, a new perspective for him to absorb and then react against. The first word out of Alistair's mouth in this chapter is madness. <laughs> Even before we learn the specifics, that word is designed to put us in mind of the Mad King. So does the fiery heart sigil on his captor's uniforms that George mentions immediately after. If Stannis is Eris, Melisandre is his Varus. We'll get more into that in Davos 4. And so Alistair Florent is a version of Carlton Chelstead, the hand who defied the Mad King. George emphasizes the parallel, the kind of archetypal nature of this dynamic, by not telling us who at first this new prisoner is. Only that he's highborn and can't believe what's happening to him. <laughs> Like I said, there is something funny about this, the contrast between how seriously he takes himself and how little anyone else cares. It's only when he shrieks his title at his captors retreating backs, I am the king's hand, like they don't know that. <laughs> only then does Davos know him. You are Alistair Florent. Alistair doesn't even notice Davos at first, despite Davos catching him when Alistair is thrown into the cell, preventing him from being injured. Davos saves Alistair from a literal fall, but can't save him from the metaphorical one he's just experienced. Alistair doesn't even recognize the name Seaworth at first, because it's not an old family name like Florent. Davos invented it when Stannis knighted him. Alistair knows Davos as the Onion Knight, a moniker which immediately summons the specter of class. Davos follows that thread when he recalls the last time he saw Alistair. It was at Storm's End, just like the last time he saw Melisandre. He saw Melisandre naked and birthing a horror. Alistair was the opposite, dressed in fine fancy clothing, red gold armor with inlaid flower designs, as Davos describes. And now, here he is, down in the dark with the Onion Knight. As Davos thinks, Alistair's birth will not serve him here, where they are to be reborn. Alistair apologizes for his appearance, which is just absurd, a social norm that doesn't make sense in his new context. He's in an underground dungeon, no one cares how you're dressed. Alistair says his fancy clothes were lost in the battle. He has only the rings on his fingers, in contrast to Davos, who lacks even the fingers. There's this long, hilarious bit where Alistair imagines that one of the dirty poors in King's Landing, born like Davos without a lordly name, might right, right now be walking around wearing his nice clothes. That's the horrors of war, he says. It's bitterly ironic, because Davos went through the actual horrors of war. The wildfire explosion that claimed his sons, his ship, and almost his life. Davos was genuinely loyal to Stannis before he came into his power, and has lost so much for it. Alistair jumped the ship to Stannis only when it was convenient, lost only material possessions, and considers that to be horrible. Even when Alistair tries to compete in the grief sweepstakes, <laughs> he calls further attention to the class gap between them. Alistair lost his nephew on the Blackwater, Sir Emery Florent, who, as Davos reminds us, was the asshole who led them right into Tyrion's trap, ignoring Davos' advice because it came from, quote, a lowborn craven, the Onion Knight. Yeah, why are the Florence just all of them to a man and woman just assholes? I guess Shireen is like <laughs> part Florence, so she's not an asshole, but like all of them are just the worst. My goodness. And, you know, you get to that real sense of this here because 
Alistair was well back behind the forward line of troops when the battle was going down. As Corain Sathmantis told Davos in his last chapter, we took many who wore the fox and flowers, though many were more were left ashore with all manner of badges. Lord Florent is the king's hand on Dragonstone now. As we know from the Battle of the Blackwater Bay, Salador San's Lysini fleet was positioned off in the bay itself. They weren't actually in Blackwater Brush in the river. So the Florents that were picked up and rescued were well away from the main fighting, probably east of the King's Road, in a spot where they could be easily rescued by the ships that were conveniently placed out there in Blackwater Bay. Give Emery this. Unlike his uncle, he was in the thick of the fighting, who, of course, his uncle Bruce Bolton himself and his men out of any real fighting. That is House Florent in a nutshell. And they're the worst. That's a great point. I hadn't picked up on that. That's, of course, the reason why Alistair and his men were in such a position to escape, because they'd been in the rear guard during the whole battle. In the face of Davos's losses, Alistair can only offer thoughts and prayers. <laughs> and even those are insincere. He hesitates before saying, may the Lord of Light guide them. He says, may the, may the Lord of Light guide them. <laughs> on first read, I thought he was just taken aback by what Davos had gone through. But Stephen Atwell, in his essay on this chapter, argued that Alistair was about to say a prayer to the Seven, the gods he was raised with only remembering at the last second that he prays to R'hllor now. He's such a phony, in contrast to Melisandre, who is sincere. If anything, she's way too sincere, and now the pendulum swings the other way. Davos prays to his gods, the Seven, but only in the privacy of his thoughts. Melisandre said that the war was only getting started. Alistair says the war is over. Team Stannis lost any hope on the Blackwater. As with Melisandre, talking about the, the coming long night, Alistair has a legitimate point here. The odds are now stacked against Stannis to a comical degree. The only thing preventing the Lannisters from finishing him off is Salador's fleet. And Alistair is right, they will run rather than fight. That's the naval situation. What about Stannis' army? Just as bad, if not worse. The lords of the Narrow Sea are dead or fled. All Stannis has is the strength of House Florent. And even Alistair, the head of House Florent, isn't going to pretend that this will be enough against the combined forces of the Lannisters and the Tyrells. Alistair wants to salvage what he can out of that mess. How's that treason? So far, sounds reasonable. But Davos notices Alistair isn't saying what he actually did. And when asked, Alistair keeps dodging the point. Well, regardless of what he did, it can't be treason, because treason is what bad people do, and <laughs> Alistair isn't a bad person. He's the hand of the king. How can he be a traitor? It's classic Nixon logic. If the president did it, it can't be illegal. Yeah, soundproof logic right there. I also want to point out that Alistair's crimes go beyond the treason that he very obviously commits here. He also misrules the kingdom. We later learn from Davos's fifth chapter that Maester Pylos presented Maester Aemon's letter to Alistair Florent, the one that was warning of the attack at the wall, and now Mance Raider was coming down with his wildlings and descending on the realm. And what did good Lord Alistair Florent do with that letter? Fucking nothing. Not even bringing it up to Stancer Melisandre for their eyes. So beyond the treason that Alistair very obviously did, he fails his king and the people of Westeros by discarding the most basic duties of the realm, defending the people. And right before Alistair confesses what he's done, he stops to wonder why it smells like shit in here. Because there's shit in here, of course. There's a chamber <laughs> pot. They don't have a privy. Alistair is horrified by this, George writes, just as he was horrified by the thought of some stable boy in King's Landing wearing his nice clothes. Those are his priorities, and I think we're meant to roll our eyes at him. This is what you care about after you've been arrested for treason by a bunch of pyromaniacs? The smell? Who gives a shit, so to speak? <laughs> Davos doesn't care about the smell. He's experienced worse. He's happy just to be alive, and his priorities, while not perfect, are more sensible. And that's George letting you know that Alistair is not a reasonable man just trying to do the right thing. He's a pompous ass driven by ego. What Alistair did, he finally admits, 
was write a letter to Tywin offering surrender. Stannis would give up his claim to the throne, retract what he said about Joffrey being a bastard born of twincest, and marry Shireen to Tommen in order to seal the deal. Oh, and Alistair gets his castle Brightwater Keep back. Remember how in the last Tyrion chapter, the Tyrells got the Florent Castle instead? That, right there, is Alistair's priority. Not peace, but power. He claims that they couldn't ask for better terms. He's probably right about that. But these terms are much more favorable for Alistair than they are for Stannis. Alistair gets everything back, like nothing ever happened. Like he never declared first for Renly and then for Stannis. Like he never switched gods like a man changing his boots, as Courtney Penrose told him to his face. But Stannis? Not only does he have to declare himself a lying usurper to the world, but he has to hand over his only child as a hostage. It's even worse, as Davos thinks. Unless Stannis fathers a son, this would mean that Dragonstone and Storm's End would pass to Tommen. It would mean that the genuine Baratheon line gets absorbed into the Lannister twincest line that is only feigning Baratheon heritage. Now, Alistair could make the case to Stannis that this is better than fighting a losing battle, after which the terms would be much worse for anyone still alive. But he didn't bother to do that, as Davos realizes, asking the pointed question, well, what did Stannis make of these terms? And that is Alistair's real mistake, subverting the chain of command and trying to surrender without the king's consent. Exactly. And Alistair's protestations that he speaks with the king's voice is really feeble here because he's not speaking with Stannis's voice. There's perhaps a sense that Alistair judged Stannis to be similar to Robert in his carelessness about how the realm was to be ruled. Again, as we talked about in A Game of Thrones, Robert was famously careless and didn't get into the details of rule. He really didn't like to be ruled for being he really didn't like to rule for being honest here. John Aaron and then Ned Stark were the ones who were in charge of day-to-day governance. But Robert, for his faults, probably would not have surrendered to the Lancers in this situation knowing what he did. If there's one thing Robert did well, it was all that war fighting and shit. Still, Alistair may have thought he had a similarly-minded Baratheon in Robert and could run the kingdom and issue out policy without much or any pushback from the king. Stannis, though, is different. A deliberate contrast to Robert in that he has to give in that he has a give-a-fuck meter. Moreover, beyond simply the act itself, and I'll argue it's treason as Stannis will state in the next Davos chapter, it graded against the core of Stannis' being. The man believes he's the king and wants to not enter into this determination. It's simply law. But as we talked about back in A Clash of Kings, his claim to the Iron Throne is much more personal for Stannis than what he makes it out to be. So it's much worse than a bit of light treason. Alistair Florent was taking up the position that Stannis should get what he deserves. He should be happy with Dragonstone and not Storm's End. He should be happy with getting out of this war with his life. He only has to surrender his claim, give up Shireen, and tell everyone that he's a liar. Stannis, in Alistair's opinion, should be happy that he's getting away with his life and castle. How horrifying for Stannis to have some shitlord Florent treat him the same way that Robert did. I think that is the emotional impetus beyond, behind what Stannis says in Davos' fourth, Davos's fourth chapter about, yeah, it is fucking treason. It is on its own terms, but it's also treason to the character that Stannis Baratheon is. So why did Alistair Florent do it this way? Well, once again, it's ambiguous. On one hand, Alistair says that it's because of Melisandre. Salador told us that no one talks to Stannis but the Red Woman, and Alistair gives us a hint what they're talking about, the Stone Dragon. This is the first mention of the beast Melisandre intends to bring to life in order to secure Stannis' power. We'll talk more about it in later Davos chapters. Here it's being used to set up a parallel to the Targaryens. I already compared this scenario to the downward spiral of the Mad King, and now here we have Alistair saying the king has lost his mind. He also references the alchemists that Eris elevated. Then there are the mages that Aegon III brought over to pray over his eggs, and the disaster at Summerhall. And this is also the first mention of that in the main series. Again, we'll talk more about Summerhall as we go. 
The point is George is conjuring up an entire history of fire and blood, and framing Stannis and Melisandre's dark deeds as the latest incarnation of the pattern. Stannis himself lists several examples of dragon dreams going wrong, but he gets talked into sacrificing Edric anyway. The king is not mad, no more than Melisandre is cruel. In both cases, it's something more relatable, but also more dangerous. As Asha puts it, an iron ferocity that told her this man would never, ever turn back from his course. And I agree with Alistair that no good will come from walking this path. But I also agree with Davos that Alistair lacks the courage of his convictions. Alistair claims that as the hand, he speaks with the king voice. Not in this, Davos says, agreeing with you. The blunt words in contrast to Alistair's posturing bullshit. Sure, Ned spoke for Robert when Robert wasn't there. And sure, he gave an order Robert wouldn't have given. But it's a big leap from that to surrendering your king's crown for him and selling off his daughter to his enemies. Alistair clearly wanted to arrange a fait accompli. He wants to have it both ways. He wants to surrender to the Lannisters without giving up his power. So he stabbed Stannis in the back. The irony on reread is that Alistair is confessing to the man who will replace him. Davos will be Stannis' new hand of the king, precisely because he says hard truths, right to Stannis' face, as no one else will. And yet, because this is a chapter all about ambiguity, George leaves Davos with a problem to solve. When Alistair says that Stannis has no choice but to surrender, Davos responds that Stannis can die a king. And there is something powerful about that. There's some catharsis there, going down with the ship, so to speak. You stick to your guns, you refuse to lie, and you make them come kill you. But Alistair is right that this would mean all of them dying with him. And Davos doesn't want that either. He's already lost too many to the fire. So as this chapter ends, Davos is in a quandary. How can Stannis keep his cause going in a way that doesn't just amount to a suicide mission? That's the needle Davos has to thread before his story in this book can end. And he begins that process in his next chapter, which is one of the best chapters in Storm of Swords and probably my favorite Davos chapter of them all. It's a hell of a chapter, and I have to agree that it is probably the best Davos chapter in all of the series so far. It's interesting that Alistair tells Davos he speaks with the king's voice because Davos will use the exact same wording with Edric Storm at the end of the book. There, Davos will convince Eddie, I said Eddie, but Edric to take the ship and use his authority as Hand of the King to convince the boy to leave Dragonstone. Davos uses his authority to undermine the king to commit treason against his sovereign. Isn't that kind of similar to what Lord Alistair Florent did here as Hand of the King? He uses his authority to betray his king. Now, that's probably what some immoral will probably argue at some point, though, and I'd say that's kind of sophistry, because Alistair's treason is couched in the context of maintaining his lands and honors. He's doing this all for himself. Davos commits treason all to save Edric Storm's life, one boy against a kingdom. And he did it to save Stannis from setting his heart on fire. But that's only temporary. The Iron Ferocity that you referenced from Asha's The King's Prize chapter points towards the ultimate end for Stannis and for Shireen. And Davos won't always be there to save, to save Stannis from the dark. In a way, Davos is the torch in the dungeon of Stannis's life, and soon the torch will be gone, and only darkness will remain. Ooh, I shivered. Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly where we're going as, uh, as Team Stannis turns north, hopeful at first, but then getting further and further lost <laughs> in the cold, as we'll, we'll cover in later books. Mm-hmm. So, shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, when Davos hears Alistair's plan involving marrying Shireen off to Tommen, Davos mentions that Stannis would sooner see her dead. And while, of course, that's not going to be why Stannis sacrifices Shireen to avoid a marriage with Tommen, I do think that's George seeding this idea in our head that, that Stannis is, is so devoted to his ideals that he would sacrifice even his daughter to see the fulfillment of them. I agree. And, and I think there's been a lot of like conversation about why Stannis is going to do the deed to like save the realm and things like that. Kind of the same 
conversation we're going to see in Davos's fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters. But I do think there is going to be an element when we find this out in the Winds of Winter where there will be Stannis sacrificing Shireen to maintain his his hold on power, that he would rather have, have Shireen die than give up his claim to the Iron Throne. Even even at the end of all things, I think that it will be one of the animating, motivating factors for, for Stannis Baratheon. It won't simply him being doing a, a terrible thing to save the world. There's also has to be that personal element, which will be mm-hmm. important for Stannis' characterization and how he proceeds with that act in the Winds of Winter. And then finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, Melisandre will later regret not leaving Davos in the dark after he informs her and Stannis that Edric Storm is out out of their reach. It is kind of one of those, one of my favorite moments in A Storm of Swords, one of those triumphant moments. I mean, everyone looks at like Stannis, Stannis, Stannis is like the triumphant moment. For me, it's when Davos realizes that Melisandre did not pick up, that he, mm-hmm. had, that Edric Storm is away from him. And then, and she's like, well, I, I should have taken the torch from you back in the dungeon. It's kind of that kind of, um, I don't know, it's kind of a petty way of, of, of being like, I wish, I wish you were never been born sort of thing. I would like that something that someone might say, I don't know, it's, it's fun to me. It's it's a great moment because it disarms her spooky confidence and the serenity she has in a chapter like this one. And she calls back to it to to reveal just how far Davos has come and how, how well he responded to the challenge she lays out for him in this chapter. Because ultimately Davos, Davos does uh, defeat Melisandre in terms of the struggle for Edric Storm and the struggle for what direction Stannis should take for the time being. But of course Stannis and Davos then separate in the north and that's probably going to be crucial to how both of their stories uh, turn out. So uh, moving into theory and discussion... This is the one and only time in A Song of Ice and Fire where we hear the phrase, the Great Other. This is a name Alessandra invokes to describe the opposite god to R'hllor, a god of ice and darkness and long night that is presumably, in her mind, animating uh, the White Walkers and their zombie slaves. So I wanted to ask, do we, do we think this is a thing? Is, is Melisandre right that there is a, a godlike single individual force animating the others? What do you think of that? Um... No, I don't think that there is a great other, at least in in the form that that Melisandre is is looking at as as two gods in a general struggle with each other. And I I don't because because I mean we, you, you talked about it so well in the depth portion of the episode where the binary that Melisandre holds about all things is not the reality. It's not it's it's on its face. It's not the reality, and that there is a, a middle space there. The show obviously has kind of the White Walker King, so to speak, kind of like the chief other who might be kind of like the great other figure. But George has talked about how that figure is mythological in his own story and won't be seen in, in the main series. And so the others have they, – they, they, uh, they exist first off, but I think they, they also have – I don't know if there, there's a hierarchy in the way that we we look at. It. There's not mm-hmm. some like great White Walker King like in controlling everything, or a, or a Night King as as the show put. It. I was having a hard time remembering the name Night King for whatever reason. So I was thinking about it. I think that that the Night King is an interesting concept. I think it made for like good storytelling, and it made for a way that viewers could see one singular other as like the kind of the face of evil. But I think it's more a Song of Ice and Fire, more George-ish, George-ish if you have that kind of broad view of the others as 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 being something. So I don't think there is a great other necessarily. I do think it represents like the cold, the ice, the ice demons is, as as Malison will talk about in a later John chapter in a storm of swords, demons from the night of the ice worlds kind of thing. I I think that that's more of what what that means, but no, I don't think there's there's a great other or that there is a a foreign god in in, in antagonistic conflict with with Rulor. What do you think, sir? 
I agree. I think that's true for a number of reasons. One is that Melisandre later thinks that Bloodraven is this figure. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of supposed to be a, a cue to the reader that she's kind of off base in terms of how she's she's thinking about her enemy structurally. In the, the couple of encounters we've had with the White Walkers, there there there's really no sense of of one single intelligence. We didn't we don't even see that in in Bran's chapters where he's having more more vision questy stuff. And also, I, I lean more in that direction ever since Euron was introduced because he seems to be standing in for that role of, of a singular antagonist involved in, in the magical sorcerer stuff. So to, you know, however far he gets, whatever he manages to, to, to accomplish or break, I think he's, he's serving that, that functional structural role. And yeah, the, the others seem to be to be more like a hive mind, which is a concept George has explored in his other stories and that there's there's an animating power that moves among them in you know in the same way we don't get a sense that there's like a king of the children of the forest the ones mm. that we meet in in the cave beyond the wall like they don't other than blood raven i guess they don't really have a leader and i think that's that is more or less what we're seeing with the white walkers too that i don't, I don't yeah i don't think there's there's a singular one it's more of a more more of a an entity an energy that that moves among them and maybe It'll be interesting to see maybe that there'll be like some disappointment if Melisandre is still around or, or for how Danny thinks about it. Maybe they'll be hoping for one that they can fight and one that they can destroy. And I don't think that's going to be there. And I do think that, you know, the Night King, even if uh, he wasn't super compelling as like a character, I do think it make, he makes total sense in the show. Because as you were saying, you need something visually for the audience to like, there's there's the guy, there's the threat. You know? <laughs> right. You, you, I think you, you need that. But I think the, the others as a concept, as they're described in the books is more as George says a, a different kind of life and it's it's not it's not one nemesis but a but a, a completely different you know an, an alien race I think they they come from Westeros the, the backstory in the show may well be true but they're supposed to feel like a, I think like an alien group and I think that's that's more what they are structurally yeah George has talked about how he doesn't want to have like, he's he's talked a lot about how he looked at like the the successor to Tolkien of having these dark lords and things like that. He's, he looks at that with a bit of skepticism and and, and negativity because he, he thinks that 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 dynamic is not very compelling to have. Like, oh, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and here's the bad, the chief bad guy and here's the chief good guy. And and you know he he, he had said this in the context of, of Tolkien specifically and how there was you know Sauron as the dark lord what was something that he respects and of course he's he's a big Tolkien fan but he's felt that the successors to Tolkien didn't capture the same dynamic there because a lot of what we see in Tolkien and what we see in the Song of Ice and Fire is that evil lurks in the hearts of men right that's the that's the great aspect of it that there is an evil and external evil an alien feature that you would that you put so well but like the real evil lacks in the hearts of men and i, and I think you're on great joy kind of adapting the kind of knight king role or, mm-hmm. or archetypal figure is is really key and pivotal but Euron is still is still a man and i don't know that he's necessarily well he could be and he will might be might well be but enthralled necessarily by the others the others mm-hmm. aren't like controlling like his movements and his motions He's just inspired by that nihilistic ideology that the others seem to embody so well. And I think that's much more compelling in, in the books. And, and Grant, the Night King in, in, in the show was was great. It was it was a great visual effect that they put on there. And the makeup and the costuming they did was was really good. You go back and look at the YouTube videos that they did for the costuming of the, uh, the actor. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the guy's name, but it, it's done really, really well. But I think it works much better in the books for there not to be like some night king, some great other, but rather to have the others as as an entity there, but true evil lurking in the hearts of men. Yeah, perfectly put. I don't think there's supposed to be a, a final boss in that regard. I think it's it's moving off in a different direction entirely. 
I agree. Man, we just agree too much. We got to find some more disagreements here. Right? We got to fight about something again. Soon. We have to find, we'll we'll find something eventually one of these days. But I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Davos 3. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you always for those of you who support us on Patreon. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warren of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Thibs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Cabothian Frozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, drinker of strong wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planet Toast Society. Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Kenneth House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, who's rod and ringer of tinfoil, Aaron Damper, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Huron Crow's Eye, and Ned M. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords John 3 in which Jon Snow enters the cave. Oh, you know he does. You know he does. It's it's, it's George's big sex joke of a chapter, but uh, in all seriousness, it is probably his his best written chapter in terms of sex and romance. It's very well done, intimate stuff between John and Egret, and it's it's absolutely foundational for Jon Snow's character arc. I think, you know, if it weren't weren't for that relationship in this chapter, he'd be in a totally different place as he goes forward as a character. So even though it's smaller scale than some of the chapters we're dealing with, it's still going to be an important one to cover. It really is. It's going to dominate John's thoughts through Mm -hmm. to the end of the series for uh, at least the published series so far, probably onwards into the Winds of Winter and beyond. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, John 3.